Hello, uh, good morning, good evening, uh, good afternoon, uh, wherever you, you are. And uh, welcome to the LSC um, webinar, The Future of African Feminist Activism. And uh, today we having a, a wonderful panel. Uh, regrettably, um, Professor Joji Tsikata is unable to join us due to a family, a pressing family issue. But uh, we will have with us uh, Professor Amina Mama and Dr. Sipokazi Magadja. And uh, today's event examines the long history of feminist activism in Africa. And, uh, it, and also its enduring impact on society. Uh, we will try in this event to engage an intergenerational dialogue by bringing in, perspe in, in the perspectives of scholars who have been working on this issue for a long time and scholars that, have, uh, um, that belong to the next generation, so to speak. And it will be interesting to listen both to Professor Mama and Dr. Magadja on their perspectives on these issues. And this is so important because at this critical historical juncture, the world is grappling with a myriad of fault lines. Um, we have the failures of neoliberalism, which is exacerbating socioeconomic inequalities and leaving millions behind. The environmental and climate crisis that is triggering devastating natural disasters and jeopardizing the future of the younger generations. We have also the systemic racism in the global north that is alienating black and brown populations. And we have the health crisis or the health emergencies like the COVID-19 pandemic that is bringing social and economic life to a halt and killing hundreds and thousands across the world. And women are being disproportionately affected by these problems. These crises have spawned new types of activism and social networks of support and solidarity. However, women's movements and feminist activism in the continent have been examined in numerous publications and uh, in numerous debates. There have been numerous debates and discussions around the issues of feminist activism. Uh, for example, Fallon's book, Democracy and the Rise of Women's Movement in Sub-Saharan Africa in 2008, or Asim's uh, work on women's organizations and democracy in, Southern, in South Africa, or the Women Writing Africa project that focused on West Africa and the Sahel, uh, or even the volume uh, African Women's Movements, Changing Political Landscape by Trip, Casimiro, Quesiga, and Mungwa. And uh, probably the one of the most recent analysis is by Charmaine Pereira in 2017, in an introduction entitled Feminists Organizing, Strategy, Voice, Power, among many other. 
So women's movements have been instrumental in mobilizing coalitions of women, in setting political agendas, and putting pressure on governments to act in the interest of women. A statement on the post-COVID-19 economic recovery prepared by African feminists and addressed to decision makers in, in, in terms of procuring uh, resources and funding the, the new post-COVID strategy for the continent emphasizes that profits made in economies and markets have been heavily subsidized by women's unpaid care and domestic work. And the signatures of this statement, they see this crisis, the COVID-19 crisis, as an opportunity to dislodge structural inequalities and reframe Africa's political economy. While African women's activism have and continue to set up new standards for women's political and social economic emancipation, a lot still needs to be done to liberate women from all sources of oppression. There is a general malaise with the slow pace of change, with decades of government inaction, and with the weak support for women's programs. So how are these challenges understood today? And how, are, how is grassroots activism addressing these problems? And also, what, would, what is the future? How do we see the future of feminist activism in the continent? So these are some of the questions that we will be addressing in today's conversation. And we are very fortunate to have a brilliant panel to guide us in this conversation, to interrogate current achievements and challenges and look into the future of feminist struggles and activism. And it is my honor to introduce you to our two distinguished speakers. Professor Amina Mama has recently been appointed the Kwame Nkrumah Chair in African Studies at the University of Ghana, Legon. Prior to that, she was professor in the Department of Gender, Sexuality and Women's Studies at the University of California, Davis, and Chair on Gender Studies at the University of Cape Town in South Africa, where she was the director of the Africa Gender Institute. She also had posi held positions in the UK and in the Netherlands. And it is in the Netherlands that in 2004, Professor Mama was appointed Prince Klaus Chair for Development and Equity at the Institute of Social S Studies in The Hague. Professor Mama is the founding editor of Feminist Africa, a continental-wide journal on gender studies. And her publications include Beyond the Masks, Race, Gender, and Subjectivity, produced in 95, Women's Studies and Studies of Women in Africa in 96, and Engendering African Social Sciences in 97, 
which is a co-edited volume that she did with Aisha Imam and Fatou So, uh, and it was published by Codesria. She also has numerous other book chapters, numerous book chapters and journal articles published. Amina Mama is committed to strengthening activism and activist research in Africa, and her research interests include gender politics and gender policy, as well as women's movements and militarism. So what I will do next, I will invite Amina to make her introductory remarks of about seven to 10 minutes. And then I'll introduce Sipo Kazi and she will also make her introductory remarks. So Amina, please, the floor is yours. Good morning, Alcinda. Well, good, whatever time of day it is for you, it's um, very early morning here, um, but good morning to you. Good morning, Sipo. I'm sorry about Georgie, but I'm delighted to be here. And thank you for inviting me. Um, one tiny correction, and the error may be in you know, the digital transfer. I have never been employed by any British university. I just want to make that clear. When I was in Britain, I was born in London and trained in Britain, but I was a community activist financing my studies. So the first academic position I took in was in The Hague. Um, okay. They hired so that's just a factual correction. Um, but yes, I've worked in universities in Africa, the United States, and I've visited the Caribbean a lot. Thanks for the introduction. Um, wow. Uh, I will start by saying that it's really valuable and to thank you for organizing a session to discuss African feminism at the current conjuncture because it's, um, as you've already said, a, a critical moment in which we must look to the radical fringes of society for regeneration, creativity, and rebuilding. Um, and in Africa, that has always been the case. And feminism in Africa reflects the fact that women have forever been concerned about the betterment of their societies. And of course, women in Africa historically have had a great many causes to resist and protest and uh, pursue liberatory struggles. So I would begin my remarks by locating feminism in Africa, because feminism exists all over the world nowadays. I would locate feminism in Africa within African history. And that, of course, is the history of, well, if you want to go back to ancient history, we would begin with the beginning and say that the first uh, uh, movements of militant women documented took place in Africa. So we draw on the anti-colonial struggles. Um, our own anti-colonial struggles and anti-imperialism was informed very much by revolutionary socialism. As a Mozambican, you'll confirm that. So many of our movements had strong influences from Engels and Marx. So I trace the origins in contemporary history, which um, is all I'm going to talk about today, um, really um, to the struggles for nationhood, for citizenship, for independence, and women's participation in these led them to um, or be organized, militarized in some countries to perform a whole range of new roles um, and, uh, and that is how we entered the modern world, first as fighters um, for independence and African freedom, 
And then, of course, after independence, African feminism exists in the post-independence period to rectify the shortcomings of uh, independent states that proclaimed flags, proclaimed democracy, some proclaimed socialism, but dismally failed to treat women as equal citizens. So post-independence feminist movements have risen to correct the wrongs of the limitations of flag independence, which didn't bother to fully include the female half of the population, despite the long history of struggle. So African feminists therefore tend to be militant. We tend to be highly informed. Um, African feminists tend to be highly, shamelessly, highly educated. Um, That's been often held against feminism in Africa. Um, We're dismissed, people like to dismiss it as elite and un-African. But I think it's time we turned that around and said, yes, Africa's feminists are among Africa's most highly educated women. Many of us have degrees, but what distinguishes us from elite um, women seeking power and advancing their husbands' regimes is the fact that feminists have a long-standing commitment, one to ordinary women, to poor women, and that is informed by the even longer socialist commitment. So it emerges in African contexts as class resistance and anti-colonial resistance and in the pursuit of the African revolution. So I would say that's the point of emergence. I think in the um, continuing discussion you know, of feminism as we know it today, in the continuing discussion, we'll talk more about what that can mean. But the second reason it's really important to talk about it at the current conjuncture is has occurred within the last 10 years, and that is digitalization. Um, and if there's time, I'll explain how feminists in Africa grabbed hold of the potentials of digitalization. And I'm sure Sifo has better other examples as well. But we've really been as a futuristic movement intent on liberating women first. That is what's distinctive about feminism but with a view to the um, public good, to the liberation of our societies. So with digitalization, we've embraced the tool, but of course, so has everyone else. So I'll make it concrete. 10 years ago, if you Googled African feminism, you found nothing from the continent of Africa. You found African diasporas, you found Audre Lorde, you found fabulous um, examples of black feminism, of African descent feminism, but very, very little from the continent. And in the last 10 years, that has shifted dramatically. I would say we started on it 20 years ago, just as digitalization arrived on the continent. Um, And I'm happy to talk more about that. But in the last 10 years, it's not just a small posse of radical frontliners grabbing digital tools. What we have seen is the popularization of feminism, a thing called African feminism in cyberspace. And whereas that used to be entirely, um, used to, if you did a Google search, um, you would only generate diaspora material. Um, nowadays, you actually hit continental material and you will find everything from Minna Salami's Afropolitanist blog to um, Rosebel Kagamure's African Feminism blog. So I'm very happy that we've reclaimed the name. But up until today, there are still detractors who say feminism is only for white women or feminism. They misread it as a colonial thing rather than a profound anti-colonial political philosophy 
or they make it a fashionable identity for which we must thank Beyonce. Um, her appropriation uptake, uh, we're happy it got spread, um, but of Chimamanda Adichie's essay, We Must All Be Feminists, Beyonce being who she is, has sent this thing global. So once again, it is traveling, um, but you have to look closely to find out if it's actually anything to do with Africa or if it's a spin-off of Black Panther in cyberspace. Uh, so we once again, it's an opportunity that you're giving us to speak as feminists from Africa who actually have had to reclaim our own terminology. And that is why I often use the term feminist African or say feminist and African, because I want to say that for me, it is not a fashionable identity for women my and my age group um, and hopefully the generations that uh, we bring along with us through our teaching and so on. Um, feminism in Africa is like socialism in Africa, is like liberation in Africa. It's our own movement. We to, to dispute that is to deny about four decades of serious intellectual and political work and movement making that women across the continent have been involved in. And finally, Google searches are beginning to touch that, at least our journalists and our publications. Our movements um, exist at another level, most of which I would say and should stay, so is and should probably stay beyond the global public gaze, because up until now, we're still trying to correct the global gaze on Africa. So we don't need it gazing on our very young, on our nascent, on our experiments, on our attempts to, to build change, the likes of which they may never have envisaged. Certainly when the Europeans hit Africa, they did not expect to find women fighters, economic producers, builders, because their own women were cloistered. So we're returning to the African potentiality of African women and indeed pointing it forwards. So most of all, I say we're not going to talk about the future of feminism. I'm going to say to you, because that needs to be discussed in the movements and among the feminists of Africa, just as it is in every other region. Um, but I would say that feminist is absolutely the future of Africa. It's an important futuristic force for Africa's future. Thank you. Thanks, Amina. Thank you for taking us through those four decades of uh, feminism in Africa, starting with the liberation wars to um, today. And you have given us some interesting food for thought and elements for a, a very interesting discussion. Thank you, Amina. Um, let me move on to introduce our next speaker, Dr. Magadja. Uh, so Dr. Sipokazi Magadja is a senior lecturer in the department of, let me just move this to my notes, sorry. Just lost good morning, Sipo. <laughs> Sipo, good morning. <laughs> morning, Professor Sipokazi. Yeah. Sipokazi and Amina, could you just mute yourselves for a little bit? Thank you. So I was introducing Dr. Sipo Kazimagadja, a senior lecturer in the Department of Political and International Studies at Rhodes University in South Africa. Her teaching and research interests range from post-colonial civil wars and militarism in Africa, demobilization, disarmament and reintegration processes 
to African feminisms, gender, citizenship, in, and, and citizenship in South Africa. Dr. Magaga is a mentor for the Social Science Research Council's program, The Next Generation of Social Science in Africa. And she's a board member uh, and book review editor of the Journal of Contemporary African Studies. Uh, in 2018, she served in the presidential high-level review panel of the State Security Agency and was awarded the Rhodes University Vice Chancellor's Distinguished Teaching Award. Her most recent publication is Theorizing African Women and Girls in Combat from National Liberation to the War on Terrorism, published in 2020. She's currently completing a manuscript on women and the armed struggle in South Africa. Sipokazi, it's a pleasure to have you here with us today. And I'll invite you to um, present your introductory remarks. Thank you very much, Professor Honwana. Uh, and thank you to Professor Mama. It is an honor um, to be part of this conversation on the futures of African feminist activism with elders like yourselves who are pathfinders. I will read my opening remarks and then speak um, to the discussion points that will follow. It is again an honor to find myself among these pathfinders whose life work has been dedicated to understanding African women's lives, strategies of survival, resistance, and joy. Today, my generation is able to claim a distinct character of African feminist struggles because the generation before us has shown that ideas of gender and power, which are entangled with histories of colonial occupation, produce specific structural realities for African women whose activism and visions of liberation have meant that to free themselves is to free the entire race, as Professor Mama also showed. The future of African feminist activism is the substantive realization of the rights that African women have fought and largely won at the end of the 20th century. As we mark 20, so as we mark 35 years of the Women's Conference in Nairobi, 25 years of the Beijing Conference, and 20 years of the Women and Peace and Security Agenda, it is often easy for my generation to assume that the battle for the codification of rights did not take decades of sustained organizing across countries and regions. As Olonisaken, Hendricks, and Oketch show in their sustained tracking of the women, peace, and security agenda in Africa, it is the convergence of activism, feminist analytical work that leads to policy changes, not the other way around. Policy does not precede activism in the African experience. As African women have fought for the codification of gender equality, it will again take feminist sustained activism and strategizing to push against the emptying 
of their visions for holistic and structural equality. Hedesi reminds us that the meeting of 14,000 women in Nairobi in 1985, Namibian and South African women spoke about their fight for equality as women within liberation struggle for an independent Namibia and the overthrowing of apartheid in South Africa. As Hasim reminds us, in the 1990s, when the liberation movements were negotiating for a democratic society, not a single woman was included in any of the teams constituted by political parties and movements to negotiate the terms of a democratic society in South Africa. So while the women articulated in Nairobi that their liberation was intertwined with national liberation in the 1990s through the Women's National Coalition. They had to fight their own comrades for the codification of gender equality as a prerequisite for a democratic society. A key source, therefore, of African feminist activism historically and today is making sense of women's full commitment to the liberation of Africans in states that demonstrates comfort with women's continued oppression. Even prevailing ideas of pan-Africanist futures, I want to argue, that claim to champion the freedom of the race remain comfortable with patriarchal power and of course, homophobia. The South African case shows, as many other cases in Africa, that even though men had fought inside and outside of the country with women, they, are willing to trans uh, they were willing to transition to a democratic society with apartheid sexist legislation. For example, I remember interviewing Major General, now retired Major General Jackie Sedibe, who joined Umkondo Esizwe, which was the ANC, the African National Congress's military wing, at the age of 16 in 1964, trained in the Soviet Union, in 1966 and lived for three decades outside of the country. She talked about how upon returning from exile in the 1990s, she went to open a bank account and was asked to provide a document giving her permission to open the account from her husband. She says, I was shocked to the core. You know when your knees shake, I joined MK when I was 16. I come back and I'm still subjected. It was really a mixture of anger, shock, she says. In the absence of codified equality, Major General Sedibe, who became the highest ranking uh, woman in the newly integrated South African National Defense Force, would still need permission from her husband to go about her business. It has been the case for women in post-independence wars in the 1990s from Sudan, DRC, Liberia, Sierra Leone, among others, that women have had to organize to participate in peace negotiations to codify gender equality in the post-conflict democratic society. African women's various contributions and histories of, military, of militancy uh, sorry, uh, that I have not automatically 
secured their claims to equality in the very national liberation movements that they've dedicated their lives for uh, in achieving substantive liberation. I argue then that if the attainment of liberal rights has been presented as the possibility of transforming structural inequalities, African women have been at the center of testing the liberation potential of liberal peace and its versions of neoliberal development, and therefore provide us with important lessons about their limitations. The achievement of legal equality in many African countries has not resulted in substantive equality as Prof. Honwana outlined the various and intersecting crises that we face. So it seems to me that the codification of legal equality that has seen African, the African continent rather lead the world in female representation in state institutions offers us lessons about the limits of representation in the absence of serious institutional commitments to structural transformation. African women have learned that women's access to power in state institutions does not directly transform the everyday lives of many African women. Instead, it tends to co-opt elite women into the violent logics of their institutions. Of course, feminists have bemoaned the ad women and stay approach that has reduced gender transformation to the cosmetic presence of few women in institutions who often find themselves isolated from feminist activists and at times find themselves critiqued by feminists for seemingly betraying their mandate, which often assumes that women can individually transform entrenched sexist, racist, classist legacies that define many of the institutions in African states today. I agree with Cheryl Hendricks that an urgent task of feminist activism today is not only to show that institutions still depend on women as the COVID crisis has shown, but rather, but also feminist activism shows us that institutions depend on gender. It is for this reason that amongst the questions that we can explore today is to ask ourselves if, uh, sorry, if African feminists must ask themselves rather if institutional cultures can be transformed and what it would take to transform them. As the African feminist statement on post-COVID-19 economic recovery in states shows us or argues old economic frameworks that have routinely failed Africans are sure to do so again and will exacerbate everyday socio-economic precarity. Funmi Olonisaken has argued that we need to begin our questioning, activism, and theorizing from the spaces from which we are dying. That task for African feminist activism remains true today and in the future. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sipokazi. Thank you for uh, taking us in this um, uh, journey of uh, the situation today in South Africa, but also following on what Amina was saying about the different stages and the role of women during the liberation. 
and the limits and the limitations in the post-liberation movement, the fact that the liberation of our societies did not necessarily translate into the liberation of women and a lot still needs to, to be done. So in terms of uh, what, how we will proceed, I will have a, a couple of questions for our speakers. There will be a discussion internally within the panel, and then we will uh, open up uh, in the last uh, uh, half an hour or so to the, to the, to the broader uh, audience. So, um, you know, you were both very articulate to make the point that in different stages, the feminist struggles in the continent took different forms and addressed the pressing issues of that time. So um, could we discuss a little bit more and could you kind of enlighten us a little more on what are the current contours of uh, feminist activism in the continent uh, in more specific uh, uh, terms and based on your own work in terms of uh, not just uh, socioeconomic, which was very clearly exposed in the, in the African feminist statement, but also in terms of social and cultural challenges, um, pressing issues on gender-based violence, uh, etc. So I would uh, um, probably start with you, Amina. Hello. Yes. Um, thank Can you. you your, your video on. Well, I'm actually going to make a proposal because, yes. as you know, I have actually spent most of the last decade, apart from my research trips, I've spent a lot of it outside the continent and I'm old, <laughs> if I may say so. Can I just ask that Sifokazi is probably point out that she may well be more current and defer to her first? Okay, all right. Sipokasi? Uh, thank you, Prof. Uh, I feel a lot of pressure. <laughs> I will go first on feminist studies if you go first on contemporary. You know, what's happening now? Mm -hmm. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Prof. Uh, my sense is that, um, you know, if we say much of um, African feminist work has been about um, excavating what women have done, you know, sort of this emphasis of, um, what, what are the levels of women's agency um, and the extent of their victimhood in various crises? Um, I don't think that that project has changed. So even if we are talking about understanding uh, women's roles in the uh, war on terror, so if you want to understand women in Boko Haram or Al-Shabaab, a lot of that debate is still about understanding um, the levels of women's um, agency or, or victimhood. And in many ways, um, even in the uh, protests in South Africa uh, for free education, decolonial education, as well as the uh, protests and the really national um, uh, movement against uh, gender-based violence, which has led to the South African state admitting to the reality of femicide 
um, even in those student movements, um, younger, you know, the new generation of feminists still had to say women can be leaders, women are informing the strategies of this idea of, a, of decolonial education. Of course, you know, Prof. Honwana spoke about all of this work, you know, in the past uh, 10 years, as well as you, Prof., that comes from an African, from a distinct African experience. Um, and yet, even during the student protests in South Africa, the entry point was the literatures of bell hooks, um, you know, the, Afri the African-American scholarship, Patricia, uh, Patricia Hill Collins, um, even though there is the existence of at least 20 to 30 years of African feminist thought. I mean, I've had the joy of looking at this volume by um, uh, Prof. Yakub uh, Haliso and uh, Toyin Falola, the Palgrave Handbook on African Women's Studies, that really shows the, the various ways in, in which Africans in the continent and in the diaspora are thinking about women's uh, uh, different positions, whether it is uh, health or in, the, in education um, and in, in, in other movements. So it seems to me that that work of excavating uh, persists. But also, I think, even though I, I, I will accept that um, feminism is having a moment um, in, the in the digital space and that there is a pride in African women, you know, identifying as feminists. Um, it seems to me, though, that we still need to think about um, you know, this move between uh, representative uh, equality and substantive equality. So we celebrate, as we've done now with the appointment of uh, Professor Puleng Lekambula as the Vice Chancellor of the University of South Africa. But a lot of us are aware that she is really entering a, a very specific uh, type of African patriarchal institution. Of course, with, you know, racist legacies, but, you know, I, I still think that we need to think about um, the ways in which when women enter these spaces, um, they can realistically pursue a feminist agenda. So even women's access, of course, you know, we have 50% of women in our cabinet. Um, the glaring tensions with that is that it's not translating um, to a feminist agenda within political parties because the recognition of femicide in South Africa has not been because of the activism uh, of the women in the legislature in the main, although some have supported, it has come from women outside of the state. So some of us worry that, you know, where feminist activism is thriving is still outside of the state and that women, whether they are young or older, are easily co-opted um, into state institutions. I, I think perhaps I'll stop there. Pokazi, I think you stopped on a very interesting point. Amina, could you pick up on this idea that there is a, a, a kind of a disconnect between women, uh, you know, feminist activists and women in politics? And so the, the debate, the discussion, the thinking is then outside of the spaces of policy making of governance of, of, of politics and uh, the women that are there are co-opted or most of them co-opted into the system into this kind of patriarchal system 
Amina, your mic. I'm going to add to that. I think that's a that's fair in terms of a sort of big picture. Women who have entered, I mean, our states have been, despite the declarations about gender equality in the Constitution, look at the demographics. Our states have been extremely patriarchal. The best examples we have are in Southern Africa, where it's gone beyond 30, and Rwanda and South Africa. But the most of the continent, we've actually made little progress. Um, so the state will always be the state. However, I think we've always had... Two strategies. One has been, and it depended on the historic moment of the state, like when a state is new, women rush in with all their radical intentions and goodwill, and they try. It's only after they get pushed out that we then start organizing outside. But what I want to point to is that the best examples of successful mobilization over the last 20 years are those where women have worked both with the state, but also beyond it. You know, we have to have a dual strategy. Sometimes there are women trapped in working in those states who are allies. So I'm not prepared to dismiss, you know, this very heavy, judgy language of sellouts. I mean, I know where it comes from. Um, they accuse all everyone who went to school of being a sellout at one time. I mean, in Southern Africa, where it was very militarized and very much, a, you know, any woman with a brain is a so. So we have to perish that, move way beyond it. And, and really recognize that actually feminism exists in and beyond the state, in and beyond the universities, in different layers of our society. And that actually is its power. You know, this diffuse dispersal, it's a quiet movement, but states and policies like to declare great achievements for themselves. You know, I heard the, the dear, uh, head of the UN claiming that the UN really had uh, mainstream gender equality globally. And I thought, well, that's a bit unfair because the UN didn't do it. It was driven by women's movements. <laughs> but that is the nature of the state and even the best of, you know, the global state, which we're trying to defend these days. Imagine we used to critique these things. Now we're having to defend them. Really, it's true. What's happened is that, um, as I said, feminism is diffuse. And that, in a way, is its traction. And that is something that makes feminism in Africa different. For whatever reasons, you sometimes have the same women in policy, academia, and movements. And that brings a certain synergy. And we are working with that synergy in a way that um, actually undoes this fragmentation. The fragmentation is ongoing, but our insistence on synergy is continuous. So, you know, that, that's it. Femi feminism is like a weaving and a reweaving, and it has to be crafted with every year almost every week with cyberspace constantly mis issuing misrepresentations and um, dismissals. So, and we've never been powerful. So I want to say that all the ire that was ad addressed to betrayers, to the few women who got into government, I just want to mention that they never had any power. They're a, mis they're a wrong target. Leave them, conscientize them, replace them or work beyond them. You know, the, those mediocrities who betray, you know, any kind of public agenda to the people who put them in power, uh, and most of them are not there on people's power. So what can we expect? The, um, the most recent example I've seen um, in terms of this point you made that um, 
uh, we have to think beyond representation, just getting women in. You can say that in the countries where you have women in. In some countries, we still, Ghana, I mean, Nigeria, highly educated women or well, don't let us impol- <laughs> excuse me, I revert to vernacular because it's so, such an outrage for me as a Nigerian professor to admit that my country and Ghana, where I'm now working, have the highly educated women, the lowest in politics. So that tells you something, which women get into politics, that the whole system is a process. So I want to say in a way, Adichie was right, feminists everywhere, but that's no use to anyone when in a time when someone like Hillary Clinton, bless her, or he, even worse, um, more imperialist examples claim feminism, we have to be ideologically clear. So this is why the excavations you refer to, the history, the mapping, the genealogy, the authentication, the acknowledgement of what African women have contributed to global feminism. You know, I argue they got it from us because it's when they traveled out of corseted Victorian England that they found women of power, women doing incredible things. They encountered Yaya Santewa, Can you imagine? They burnt the women rebels in Europe, six million of them. So what I say is our societies have more to offer the world in terms of realizing the potentials of humanity, humanity, and our men. So so this is why I think it's it's important to note, this is not just a cultural fashion or an identity. It may be having its moment, but it is an enduring global political philosophy that African women are making extremely good use of. The recent example I was going to point to is in Uganda, where we've had, if you like, high representation, high dictatorship. This is not the first case where male dictators have co-opted women to represent them. They don't always treat them well. They get bounced in and out. But the research there shows that just because of the policy declaration, many women in villages are aspiring to politics. And they go in with good hearts. So it is up to us to help them through a system that is very flawed. And, you know, so these alliances cross-sectoral. And then I'll say that we also have created our own funds because of the economic um, colonialism we still sit under. Africa Women's Development Fund is like Global Fund for Women. It is never going to be as big as any government or any fund, big fund. But what it does for women, tell you, if you give women $10, they make it 100 in terms of labor. So the funding of women's movements that we now also take care of. I mean, this is all in the last 10, 20 years. Um, you know, I think the, the future is really in building more autonomous independent structures, because frankly, those so-called donors who are actually paying reparations exhaust us with their demands and they do divert. So it is only the biggest groups and networks can turn donor funds. We perform alchemy with funds from outside to do real work. And that has been my experience for the last 30 years. And you could point to Feminist Africa. It existed for 20 years. Voluntary feminist labor. So I think I'll... That's on feminism in general and happening on the movements. Um, I think you can find some of it in cyberspace, but you actually have to go to local organizations and read their documents if you want to know what our feminist movements are doing now. The COVID statement is the one example. Yeah. Thank you so much, Amina. Thank you. And I think, you know, what I would retain from this, this, this segment is this idea that, you know, that you, Amina, you still reinforce that 
we have something we are bringing we african feminists bringing something to the world we have traditions and what sipokazi is saying you know we need to excavate we have to look at where we come from and understand who we are but at the same time we are very diverse we are you know there's the women who are you know the activists the intellectuals the thinkers there are the women women who are involved in policy but there is also the ordinary women in the communities in the villages that you know in the day to day they carry on their day, daily actions in you know everyday life and and the challenge is how to build those bridges how to make this, those connections how to create those alliances because the way this we are able to transform the world is to create this critical mass it's this coalition of uh, uh, of women for change and building that coalition within the confines of these patriarchal patriarchal state and uh, you know it it demands a lot of uh, of uh, uh, energy imagination work commitment but we have seen that happen in some instances and i think the the fight is why or the struggle is one that that continues can i get you to comment a little bit more on what is happening today with the covid-19 pandemic and the impact of that pandemic on women on top of everything that we've been going through in the continent what is the real impact of this you know what is covid-19 showing us and what um uh, uh, uh what needs to be done in order to address the the impact or the repercussions that this pandemic is going to have on 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 women's liberation uh, uh and what kinds of new activisms if any anything will be new will be kind of spurred Amina, do you want to start? Do you want me to start, Sifokazi? Um, both of us, I think, were involved in the feminist COVID statement. Um, so I would say that that is the the African feminist response to COVID. So that is the existent collective statement generated, you know, fairly spontaneous and ad hoc grouping of I don't remember how many. um but the movement has the capacity to convene emergency responses like that now so that was exciting to see um it typifies the contemporary use of digital technology and how that has enhanced our capacity and our connectedness to each other now whereas 20 years ago you had to like send a dhl to reach a sister even in your own country and it usually got lost for 20 years we've had communication and the the ability to respond globally from african feminists across a wide range of geographies and instantly with uh, and we had a series of meetings discussing the content and developing it but the level of movement thinking collective thought is what produced that and it is what continues to produce um what you can read and see and find um, as products of african feminist movements um and there are many of those um and not only are there many i want to say that one of the feminist strategies is the question you you skip which is the one on feminist studies so feminists have embraced intellectual work 
as political work and a lot of us work in universities. So I would say that one of the major movement initiatives has been gender studies, gender and women's studies in universities. So whereas you can trace the history of this to 1979, two particular uh, things that happened then, but in 2002 at the African Gender Institute, they commissioned surveys and identified about 30 or so sites on the continent doing feminist work under the official rubric. No university will accept feminism here or in Africa, really, they struggle because they're all patriarchal. So gender and women's studies and then gender mainstream meant the men could have some of it too. So, so in Africa, it's gender and women's studies and we do welcome men to it. Um, it's very different from what I found in the US under women's studies, um, which I won't waste time on right now. Um, but that has been our transgenerational strategy. That is transgenerational feminist solidarity. It's every university campus where there's a course. And the most recent count is about 50 Despite the divesting and ups and downs and the sorry fortunes of the universities, new centers are growing. So it's remained a, a place of growth, largely due to the um, autonomy and the willingness, the, deter self de the determination to be self de have a self-determining space for women on campuses. So I would point to that as an aspect of movements that we shouldn't leave out. And the literature from the grand UNESCO series, I think Paul Zaleza's critique of how the UNESCO eight volumes omitted women. I'm hoping that the forthcoming three will do a better job. Um, the, our feminist response was women writing Africa. And it wasn't one volume on West Africa, four volumes, the whole continent over between 2003 and 2007. Busby's done a second vast volume of completely new content on the Daughters of Africa. So that's outside universities, really. That's public. In the universities, enormous work. I can't even really, att I won't attempt to summarize, except to say that what shifted is that if in the 1990s, when we reviewed African feminist scholarship, most of it was by Westerners. Nowadays, and then we did that again in 2002, nowadays, the published work is still dominated by Western Africanists who are sympathizers with feminism in Africa, if you like, um, solidarity, whatever. They're feminist intellectuals who are specialists on Africa, and they do often fabulous historical and ethnographic work. African feminists tend to do politics policy because we're concerned with the present and the future, and we don't have time or resources to do the deep ancient stuff. So there's, you know, it, it, the terrain varies depending. But what is new, whether it's in the ether or not, is the massive increase in feminist scholars in Africa's production. That's why we had to set up Feminist Africa because we were partly involved in a broader set of gender studies centers driving that surge and we had to have a publication. And you all know the story, global publication counts, Africa's nowhere, uh, mainstream journals, women are nowhere and they're either feminist or African. So of course we had to set up Feminist Africa. And um, it's been there now 20 years. So that's our response to the epistemological inequalities and to the fact that we have to write for ourselves, think for ourselves, and we're building that. So the shift has been the growth in continental feminist studies. So now we're in a position to forgive the fact that the first major book, African Feminism, was not about African feminism and grievously misrepresented it and wasn't edited by an African continental.
So it misrepresented because of the distance. If you look at Africa from America, you'll see it through the eyes of, what was it? Heteronormative, natalist, and preoccupied with survival as development victims. Now we say something very different and that you can find. So that for me is a big shift is we're growing more and more knowledge and more and more women who know who they are, where they come from, and are therefore in a position to ask their own questions. Most of all, we have to create the questioning, ask different questions, do not just accept, especially since most of us are being subjected to an inordinate amount of religiosity, religious pacification at the present time. Education is more important than ever. And feminism is above all an intellectual and political force for the future. So, um, you know, let's, let's proceed. All right. Thanks, Amina. And again, you have reinforced that idea of creating those independent spaces, creating those alternatives, as you've mentioned uh, before, the Global Fund for Women, and now you, the creation of Feminist Africa as that space that independent space, that alternative space for insights coming from within the continent. And I know you've been, that's one of your passionate uh, uh, projects. And Sipokazi, um, going back- It's not back- my project, sorry. It's not my project, it's a collective project. It it is, but I know uh, what I was trying to say is that it's one that I saw you starting and how passionate it was in the 2000s when it started. And of course, it's always our projects. We don't work alone. <laughs> Thank you. And Sipokazi, um, I was, what I wanted to get to also with this current situation and the COVID is, for example, in places like South Africa, where issues of gender-based violence have been so uh, 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 serious and uh, the the confinement, the lockdowns, and all those implications of COVID, how have they exacerbated uh, uh, women's women's problems and women's issues? And how do activists uh, uh, today are looking into those issues apart from the kind of the broader economic recovery and the economy that were in the statement I just wanted to look at a more kind of a, a, a localized um, issues, a social issues. Is there anything you, you, you would like to say about that? Uh, thank you, Prof. Uh, maybe to just uh, quickly respond to some of what you know, Prof uh, Mama said about um, uh, the continued sort of dominance of Africanists in, in, in uh, feminist theorizations. For me, it's very similar to the dominance of um, Africanists in, in, in general African studies. So, you know, I, I am a book reviewer, uh, editor for the Journal of Contemporary African Studies. So it's all books on Africa, but most of those people that are writing those books are actually not Africans. And most of the times they don't even bother to ask Africans to endorse those books. So they endorse each other, uh, most of them in American universities. But perhaps, you know, a a sweet moment for us, you know, is in the transformation of the physical space of universities where women are the numeric uh, majority. Um, And in their presence, they have then been able to demand, 
you know, to see people that look like them, teaching them, but also to see um, the names of people that sound like they as doing the theorization. And so I think that's the, the moment that we certainly, I think in, in, in South Africa, and I think in the continent more broadly, um, especially with the interest on work on peace and security, for me, it is a reflection of women's numeric um, representation translating into curriculum changes. And I want to see more of that. I, I do still worry that uh, too much work and even one that pretends to be, that is doctoral work still sounds um, like policy work. I, I, I look forward to a, a space where deeper theoretical work is done by feminists um, in this continent. And so to the question about the um, transformations of, of the pandemic, I mean, a lot of it has been said in terms of, you know, exacerbating inequalities. Of course, at the beginning of the various lockdowns, you had people like Bill Gates who argued that, you know, the pandemic is an equalizer and Africans and, um, and, and brown people all over the world were quick to say, of course, it's, you know, a lockdown in Africa is quite different uh, to a, a lockdown for, for a billionaire. But something that I've, I've been trying to think about is, is the securitization of the response and the, the use of the term specifically frontline. So when feminists did the work of saying, um, you know, wars do not protect women uh, because they happen in our homes, they happen in schools, um, in, and also in arguing that the war is at home as a way to say the uh, experience of insecurity that many women still face in spite of uh, legislative equality is from their homes, from people that they know. So that, that language has been still uh, undermined. But in this crisis, you know, we see the, the work of uh, essential workers and health workers who are mostly women they have been accorded the status of being the combatants uh, of this front line. So when feminists have been trying to painstakingly do this work of showing the, the violence that happens uh, in the private space, it's been resisted. And yet when states need to legitimize, you know, sending off thousands of, of, of soldiers, they are able to accord uh, war categories uh, to health workers, but South Africa shows that there are limits to the extension of those categories, because while we've been encouraged to stay at home, um, and many of the uh, women who do the, 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 um, the care work um, do it at home and in public spaces, you know, the, the redefinition of the frontline has not uh, transformed the state to, to make it respond differently to gender-based violence. So that's why at the height of the crisis, you can have a pregnant woman killed by her, her partner, um, hung and stabbed multiple times. Uh, and so for me, uh, I'm actually quite worried about the extent to which the response, the COVID response has been highly militarized with a, you know, a, a president who stood in full military uniform uh, claiming to defend um, an invisible enemy. And yet when women say in this country, the, 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 the highest risk one faces is being a woman. 
somehow it still fails to translate um, into a, a response that um, tangibly addresses uh, gender-based violence, uh, let alone a response that um, uh, addresses the cheapening and informalization of, of women's work. Uh, uh, thank you. Mm. You're muted. Thank you, Sipokazi. Um, I'm going to, to open up to questions from the audience. There's quite a lot of questions. So instead of answering each uh, uh, one by one, I will read the first three and give you um, some time to, to answer um, those questions. So we have a couple of questions from Ikena Sholunu from uh, um, uh, LSC uh, Firoz Lalji. And Ikena asks, how does African feminism differ from the mainstream white feminism in the global North? And he has a second question that is a follow-up from that, which is how does African feminism incorporate the diversity that exists on the continent, especially with, with uh, cultural and religious differences? So um, that would be one. The second one, we could take Jessica Horn's question. She says, African feminists and feminisms have been porous in our politics around the body and have been the core of solidarity with queer struggle in policy and social space, not just in theory. However, while we do carry a meta-analysis of neoliberalism, it seems that we really still keep shying away from deep conversations conversations about class and class privilege. Do you agree with why do you think, do you agree and why do you think that is? So I think those are two very big and broad questions. We could start with those two. Sipokazi? Uh, sorry, Prof, I'm not sure that I, I got the first question. Uh... I think he wasn't listening. Oh, I didn't hear it either. Well, the first question was whether African feminism was different from mainstream white feminism. He wasn't and listening. No, you're right. It is the question. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, that it is, is the question. question. Yeah, to what extent it, it differs and the extent to which it involves the diversity of cultural and religious aspects in, within the continent. That was the first. Um, I'd like to think uh, perhaps the preambles that we, we tried to give at the beginning, you know, speak to the distinctiveness of African feminism, that in many ways, um, while um, African male scholars have, and leaders have patronized African women and said that, you know, they must link their struggle to, to the broader um, liberation of Africans, the, the evidence shows in, in, I think, all of the experiences of African women's activism that their liberation is always intertwined with the broader liberation of, of their communities and their countries. Um, and part of it is because uh, African women have not had the, the liberty to make those distinctions um, about their gender or race. Um, 
and sometimes their class. They've had to, um, in participating in national liberation movements, um, they've, they've had to speak uh, for the for the uh, for the broader for the struggles of black people, um, but also because of the patriarchal nature of the African movements, national liberation movements, uh, they've had to speak specifically to questions of um, of women's emancipation. And so, uh, I mean, I, I you know earlier we we're talking about um, whether or not the the links you know, with women in universities and, 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 and women outside universities. So if I think, for instance, in South Africa, um, when the state has tried to pass the uh, traditional courts bill um, that would uh, transform the rights of women in rural areas, essentially reproducing uh, apartheid legacies where women are subjects to the powers of chiefs, it has been the collaboration of women, uh, lawyers, feminist lawyers, women in the academy that have worked with communities, uh, with African women in rural areas to push against the reproduction of uh, uh, apartheid and colonial legislation. Um, if I look at the struggles of the activists, you know, even at universities against rape culture who have been, you know, suspended from universities it has been primarily the response of feminists, uh, lawyers, and feminists in NGOs uh, who have championed that. If I think about um, who has championed uh, the extension of social grants in South Africa, where you know the state has borrowed money from the IMF, um, it is women's organizations that have championed uh, the state. Um, to, to to give money, um, to give social grants at this time that cushion not only women's lives, but entire African families. And so, I mean, that is, those are just some of the many examples of what is distinct about um, African women's um, feminism and activism. Thank you, Sipokasi. Amina, do you want to answer Jessica Horn's question? I see that the first, the first question you would go under, along the same lines as Ipokazi, judging from the previous discussion. So probably we should address. No, I wouldn't actually. <laughs> Sorry, um, I wouldn't because we have a limited amount of time, and that is a very old question. There's a huge mm-hmm. amount of material, and I don't know if. Um, Sorry, his name was a student, but. Or, or as whatever, whoever, we all read a lot. And if a feminist or a woman, anybody who wants to know what African feminism is, I think you can look at what African feminists are saying and doing, and you can read some of their voices, their publications. So I put up, took the opportunity to put up a screen share. I don't know if it's being displayed to show him where, and I've posted a thing on the chat this is just one issue. It's actually about feminists. Is it visible? Yeah. Okay. So, and then, of course, if you want to know more about the history of it, apart from all the material that um, we've mentioned, you know, from Women Writing Africa, uh, Margaret Busby's books, all of these things I had slides on, but I'm just taking the shortcut and showing you one little archive which has been there since 2002 and saying, you know, read and write it. Uh, If you have opinions, debates, read, think, write, um, join the community. Um, 
as I said, it's uh, open access. Of course, the internal work is is more restricted to mostly African women who are willing to work for it. Um, so that would be my thing on that. Um, what was the other question? Uh, Jessica's question. Yes, well, what was it? Um, deep, deep conversations on class. You know, Jessica, and indeed the, the rest of those in attendance. I've been, because I think it may be the bias of my 10 years in the USA, but I actually think I have a, a, an, a good understanding of why um, African-American, why African women on the continent look to the diaspora because, and it's a kind of irony because the diaspora looks to Africa. Um, but I think it's a, actually a simple thing. It's a function of the US domination in the global media. That is why US African-American, specifically black American culture is a proxy for African culture globally, even though it's a minority diasporic culture. In the global media, note, African-American culture is far more evident than any of the cultures of all 54 of our nations. So there's a thing of scale here. It's much harder to see African feminism and to find it, unless you're serious, than African-American feminism. So, I mean, it goes back to what I started with, which is that we've changed that, but you do have to look. If you just do Google, um, and maybe it's just my search that knows now to take me to Rosabelle's blog, African Feminisms, or Black Looks, or any of the but um, anyone can find them. And that's actually written by women from the continent. Now, if you just Google it, you will get porn sites. If you Google African women or African feminism. So I'm just saying, your searching has to be more sophisticated, but it's out there and ask the African women you know. Every one of them has a thought on this. Ever since that T-shirt, um, Feminist No Ifs or Buts was circulated by the African Feminist Forum. So it's in popular discourse. Everybody's talking about it. So anyone can answer and indeed explore. And I would say because there's a history, find out. Don't dehistoricize African women. It's disrespectful. We have a long history in all the movements. So find out. It's, a, it's there if you want to look for it. And in terms of COVID, we don't know yet. But the overwhelming thing is how we've seen to have averted disaster. Yes, COVID has stripped naked and revealed, but the predictions for Africa were that it would be far more catastrophic than it would in the West. So our starting point has to be what catastrophe happened here in the US, not in Africa. I don't believe it's a leveler because within weeks it was already reiterating class. But I think the, that, that too is a, a class question. So I think one of the things that sets African feminists apart, and indeed black American feminists have a socialist trajectory, but what I am observing is that class was displaced by race and now class and race we resist because of intersectional analysis, which comes from black feminism. We insist on keeping race and gender together, but I'm noticing that class has slipped out. Race is becoming women of color and both are being elided in US academic discourse by a rejection of gender in the name of a new kind of radicalism, which is trans politics. Now in the West, this is, this is going on and class discourse is thinning Hopefully it's being restored by movements, but in the academy it's thinned. I will not say it. The, the, the best black radical thought is class analysis, 
racial capitalism, it's a class race analysis. Racial gendered capitalism is a black feminist conceptualization of the world. Heteronormative, heteropatriarchal capitalism is a global perspective articulated by black feminists. So they have something special to offer. I'm not disputing that, but the context is different. And what what Lord writes as a, a poet is going to be different from what Davis writes as a as an actor. You know, they're all activists because of where they come from, but the different spheres demand different logics. So, and this is where African feminism becomes deep. And I'm not sure that this is the place for that deep conversation, but I would say it is a deep ideological question and we shouldn't be afraid to talk about ideology and we shouldn't be afraid to talk about liberation just because some neoliberal triumphalists who are in the process of being defeated say history ended and it's over. And the, or there is no history. History, like culture, is our reservoir of resistance. And now I'm quoting Cabral, because you know what? It's inclusive as well. He said it, there's room for everyone at the table of victory. So, you know, if you're victorious or, or optimistic, you'll be generous. And we are generous, I think. Thanks, Amina. Thanks for your question. Well, a special issue to raise the question, how have Africa's feminists coped with COVID? We're undertaking the research and calling for a special issue of Feminist Africa. So I'd like to take the opportunity to invite people to subscribe, yeah. to share, join us and share the thinking. Yeah. About how have we averted yeah. catastrophe and what are, how have local women fared? There'll be hidden things that we actually have not done the research to answer yet. Okay, so. we will also circulate that because there's a, a number of uh, participants asking for some literature and how to um, subscribe Feminist Africa and other yeah. publications, etc. So let's move on. There is a, a, a question on education by Nancy Kachingwe. She says, can we as feminists do more at the level of challenging educational curricula at primary and secondary levels? So very specific as, uh, question there. I will take uh, a few more. Um, how uh, Salome Asabre, she asks, he, uh, asks, how can we develop our own literature and research so that our stories are not distorted? I think we've touched a bit on that, but it could be expanded. expanded. Uh, one more. Uh, what role do you think a feminist political party could play in achieving a substantive feminist agenda. So kind of delving there directly into the, into, into uh, politics with creating a feminist party. So those three questions, do you want to uh, answer them? Maybe Sipokazi, do you want to, to start? Uh, thank you very much, uh, Prof. And I, I was intrigued by uh, Jessica Horn's question around the silence on class um, in, in feminist writing. And I'm wondering if um, a lot of it is also because um, 
feminist writing ends up getting caught up with responding to the erasures of white feminists about black women. So a part of me is looking forward to uh, African feminist writing that goes beyond the wrong things that white feminists said about African, African women's lives. And so I think then in talking about African women, it does allow perhaps elite women um, to, to be more silent about their own um, class privileges. And so, I mean, I think there's a connection between some of the work, even in African, I don't think there's an irony that African feminine, um, uh, what is it, feminist Africa would come out of a university such as the University of Cape Town, because we know that, you know, in many of these institutions, it is the previously white uh, institutions that where black academics, female or male, are able to produce some research. And this is not to say that, of course, the contributors um, to the journal do not come from various institutions. But, you know, a lot of uh, uh, feminists in historically black universities are not able to get on with the work of doing research. Um, And so you end up uh, with a situation where feminists in more privileged uh, institutions um, that are in conversation with women elsewhere, which for me is a loss of something. Um, You know, it's really a a loss of a focus on understanding um, the everyday um, struggles and and, and, and achievements of of African women. Um, So the question around... uh, Primary, how do we transform the curriculum? Uh, I mean, there are teachers um, that are organizing and researchers um, that are championing the transformation of the um, uh, education curriculum. I mean, it is mostly uh, feminist teachers um, in schools as well as at at universities and other institutions that are championing that. And, And one wants to see more of that because it tends to be the case that uh, by the time you know students get to university, um, the, the, the courses that center uh, feminist ideas are really done by a few academics um, in various departments. And this also becomes the trap where you know, women spend a lot of time teaching um, because the, the ideas are so few in the rest of their curriculum. And often it means then that they are not also doing the work of writing and producing those ideas. So there's quite, a, there remains a, a huge attention there because one gets pulled into all kinds of committees, not just within institutions, but outside um, doing the work of organizing and, and strategizing. And so it, it, it would make a, um, a huge difference. Uh, and then the, the, the last um, question on, the uh, possibilities of a feminist political party, I, I would love to see it um, because, uh, a, 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 you know, I am also hoping that we can go beyond motivating for women's leadership by um, centering women's unique leadership abilities. I think this is also what has led to the disappointments with women in political parties. And so, you know, women are there and there's an expectation that they must offer um, uh, feminist outcomes within very sexist and very masculine political parties. And so this leads to these labels of them 
being traitors and all of that. I just wonder, you know, um, in, in this political environment, it's difficult for me to see, um, you know, a, that a feminist organization surviving the, uh, the, the, the competition and the, and the uh, masculine nature of electoral politics. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, if Stella Nyanzi does, you know, get a, a, a seat um, in, 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 in parliament, right? It's going to be interesting to see her transformation. You know, what we've seen with um, um, Ellen Johnson Salou, for example, is another example of the difficulties of trans- transforming those very uh, uh, patriarchal and also really uh, patronage-driven politics. And so uh, perhaps this, this multiple crisis will lead, lead us to that. But from what I see, um, it's, it's, it's not so promising, unfortunately. Thank you. Thank you, Sipokazi. We have, um, we will go until uh, 10.36 or uh, five, five minutes more. We started five minutes late. So we hope that our audience will be patient and stay with us. Um, Amina, do you want to take the floor, please? I'm happy to comment um, on the curriculum because for me that is our agenda, um, partly because I'm a teacher, but also because actually this curriculum um, doesn't stay in universities. People graduate and leave. So when you teach, you're teaching you're trying to do social change if you're a feminist. Um, and I think that we've done an enormous amount. I'm answering Nancy Kachingwe's question. Um, we've done an enormous amount on curriculum. And long before the AGI, there was FAWE, the Federation of African Women Educationalists, who didn't focus on higher education as um, you know, gender studies is situated in higher education and trying to change the hearts and minds of millions of young Africans on that front. So it's elite, but it's also very big. Um, beyond the universities, um, I, I, I'm, I, it's not my sphere, but I hope that similar, I don't believe in filter down. So we actually need specific projects that involve polytechnics and above all teacher training schools, um, teacher training colleges, um, to put it into the schools. I will say that even within the universities, when we set about in 2002 with a Pan-African, a continental mandate to develop a Pan-African curriculum for teaching gender in African contexts, there was a, a curriculum committee and a group and we traveled the continent. So that generated a fair amount of work and a fair amount of curriculum transformation. And the thing we did there was start with movements, not disciplines, and build it as a transdisciplinary field grounded in African contents and reality. So that is ongoing. Um, at multiple campuses, we met, and then people went to their campuses. Because even if you develop a generic Pan-African framework for curriculum for learning, then it has to be customized. Uh, the question that I think it was Kwame raised about diversity is it has to be different in every context and what's taught in Kampala will be different from what you teach up in um, uh, rural universities. So what I'm saying, curriculum is an intimate thing and it needs to be grounded, locally relevant and effective um, with regard to advancing basic justice rights, you know, values as much as information. So it's not just any teaching, it's radical teaching and the history. Again, there's so much has been done and it draws very much on our traditions of oriture, conscientization. So feminists teach differently. 
Um, they use radical pedagogy on campuses. But I think most feminist training work doesn't happen in universities. I think a lot does, but it's still nowhere near enough. But we all the NGOs that we know of, feminist networks, femrights um, in Uganda, teaching, encouraging feminist creative writing, um, Zimrite in Zimbabwe, Titi Dangaremba's Film Festival. Are you with me? There's all manner. The movement itself has taken command of what we need to know and has done since its earliest days. Back in 1988, the Zimbabwe Women's Resource Center proclaimed knowledge is power and set about linking, doing education with, we do with, not on or to, education with rural women, rural reading programs. And those were straight out of ZANU socialism. But when the state started failing, the women's movement rose and took up, initially collaborating with them. But then, you know, as states change, women's movements find new allies, perhaps across borders. So, you know, there's a history of feminist knowledge work. For children, um, uh, I think we had to start very basic. Um, and I'm thinking of books like The Day Gogo Goes to Vote by Eleanor Sisulu. So I think feminists have been producing children's literature because, it, as it happens, many of us are mothers. So Cassava Republic um, is a multilingual feminist publishing press that does some children's books. But these issues are issues of inequality. Africa is finding difficulty devoting resources to our own upbringing as a continent, as countries, as people. We're still so externalized. We're not attending to our own upbringing and the upbringing of our own generation sufficiently. I think feminism is playing a huge role in this, as are many other civil society movements and organizations. So there's much to be done. But I'm saying it's happening, only you're not seeing it, um, is the quick answer. It's happening everywhere. It's been happening for 30 years. You'll find it if you look. Um, primary, we need to get basic. Um, it's okay to start in university. We all know it should have started from the ground. But there's an issue of numbers. If the government in, took it up, every primary school could be changed. But when you're talking about NGOs and individuals and a small movement, it may have be far reaching in its import, but numerically, all of us are horrendously oversubscribed and overworked. Yeah. So we're talking numbers that requires state action. The state is still, sadly, but still the only structure with serious capacity to make transformation in Africa because the churches are not doing it. They're the other big formation. The mosques are not doing what we want. They're the other big. These are the big formation. And you know what? The army is not going to do it either. We've tried all of those. They're not working and they certainly don't work for women. So I want to propose that this question on curriculum be taken up by every single citizen, every person. Inform, raise awareness, move forward, especially in the time when there are counts strong. I'm sitting watching a, a, an American president refuse to vacate office. Africa is not alone. And there's, I don't know that there's anything very distinctive when it comes to politics because we've taken their models and now they're modeling on us. I find that very entertaining already this was such an enriching uh, discussion um and uh, uh so thank you very much to everyone who joined us for this discussion and a special thanks to sipokazi magadla and to amina mama it was a pleasure spending this time with both of you and uh, thank you very much for your generosity of time and uh, ideas Bye, everyone. Thank you.